the news is that the administration is going to provide cluster munitions to uh, the Ukrainians. These are weapons that 100 nations ban, including some of our closest NATO allies. The UK, Germany, Canada, New Zealand, they've all come out uh, against this decision. In fact, a majority of countries throughout the globe have all banned cluster bombs. The Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. This is a, this is a war relating to munitions. Cluster bombs should never be used. That's crossing a line. We have instances still of children, um, you know, picking these things up on their way home from school and being blinded or losing their arms or being killed. And is that what we want to see in Ukraine? That's international lawyer Trussa Dunworth joining the chorus of outrage at the US plan to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. She's talking about the devastating effects that NATO's use of cluster bombs is still having in Serbia and Kosovo 20 years after the war there ended. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, why the US is going against a deal signed by more than 120 countries that bans cluster munitions, a deal that New Zealand helped design. We got a lot of goodwill for, <laughs> for the involvement uh, in creating the Convention on Cluster Munitions in New Zealand has has continued to stay centrally involved. Mary Wareham heads the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch and we'll hear more from her soon, along with longtime international law expert Stephen Hoadley on what's behind the US move. We're talking about uh, military pragmatism here. We're talking about the usefulness of these weapons under certain circumstances to provide a defensive capability that otherwise would not be possible. This is a soundtrack of a video showing cluster bombs exploding in a desert. It's like a bunch of firecrackers going off, only much more destructive, of course. Trussa Dunworth is a specialist in disarmament law at Auckland University. Cluster munition works like this. You have a main munition, which is the cluster munition. And when it's fired from a rocket or an aircraft, it opens out in midair and releases sub-munitions, so smaller munitions. And it, depending on the type of cluster munition, um, it can be anywhere from two sub-munitions to up to 100. And they scatter, they spread right out. The little bomblets, they fly really fast, real, and they're really hot. It's called a shape munition. It has the ability to pierce through an up-armored vehicle. The next one is anti-personnel. You often hear about the military talking about frag rounds or fragmentation rounds. These ones, as they land or as they explode, they fragment up into a bunch of little pieces. So you have the bomblets that then frag into more pieces over a large area. So it has a massive footprint. The second reason that these are considered indiscriminate is because of the very high failure rate. So the failure rate means that the, the little sub-munitions that land, the idea is that they are supposed to detonate immediately. 
um, not fail to detonate because then if they fail to detonate, they essentially lie in wait. Um, so they become, in fact, a landmine. Um, and there's no, in the older weapons, certainly, there's no turnoff mechanism. So it means that long after the war, you have this infestation of lethal um, weapons in the ground. And they're quite small. And of course, that makes them very useful from a military point of view, right? Because they're often used in area denial, uh, so along a border, and particularly, you know, in this situation with Russian troops moving and advancing forward. These are very effective weapons, but that's the very same reason why they're so dangerous to civilians. It's called a dud rate, the, the number that, that are actually duds. The U.S. says the ones they're sending to Ukraine have a very low dud rate, less than 2.35%. Two points to make from that. First of all, they're admitting that there is a failure rate, right? Mm. And it's probably much higher than that, although we don't know because they haven't said exactly what's being released. But even 2.35%, if you have 10,000 cluster munitions and each of those breaks into, let's say, 50 submunitions, right? Yeah. Do the maths how many unexploded mines will be left if they are in fact correct that it's 2.35%. So the maths is 10,000 times 50 is half a million times 2.35% is 11,750 little landmines. So 2.35 sounds like a tiny number. It's not a tiny number. And failure rate, when you talk about failure rate, that is the unexploded ones. That They are the little munitions that will sit in the ground even when long after possibly the war is over. Yes, and we have situations, so um, the United States used thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, cluster munitions across Laos. It's considered to be one of the most mined countries in the world, even still today. Um, and still, there's huge areas of agricultural land that cannot be used because it's unsafe, because it hasn't been demined. So I don't have the figures at the top of my head, but I think that it costs about three to five US dollars to make for one of those little cluster munitions. Mm. Um, but it's thousands of dollars to clear one and so dangerous to the people who have to do the mine clearance. China and Russia have been investing in the, the new production of cluster munitions, whereas other countries had appeared to be kind of walking away from cluster munitions. And we'd, we would have put the US in that category up until last week. Mary Wareham is the acting director of the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch. The United States has not used cluster munitions since 2003 when it invaded Iraq. There was one single attack in Yemen in 2009 that it's never confirmed or denied that attack. Um, the United States has not produced cluster munitions since 2016 when the last manufacturer in the country shut down. Um, but it does still possess considerable stocks of cluster munitions, and that is what the U.S. is talking about transferring to Ukraine is um, an artillery projectile that contains cluster munitions uh, and, the, and the type of submunition that are delivered 
livid in these cluster munitions is, is notorious for having a terrible, uh, terrible failure rate for failing a high percentage of the time. And that's part of what's so horrifying about this decision is that, you know, we're not just sending, not sending new cluster munitions, uh, you know, not that there are good cluster munitions, even though the Pentagon tried to make that case. The U.S. is sending, you know, cluster munitions made more than 20 years ago that are highly unreliable. Human Rights Watch has been documenting harm from cluster munitions for decades. We were very much involved in the creation of the international treaty banning cluster munitions 15 years ago. And we've been documenting, we've put out at least 10 reports. I looked um, back uh, looking at civilian harm from Russia's use of cluster munitions in Ukraine uh, since the very first day of the war. So it's dismaying to see this weapon, which is well known for causing civilian uh, harm and suffering around the world, uh, being transferred by the United States to Ukraine for use in the in the war. Uh, many members of the Cluster Munition Coalition of NGOs that we chair are completely appalled by the move. The Convention on Cluster Munitions. Tell me about that, because New Zealand played a big role at the beginning. Yes, New Zealand played a pivotal role in the creation of the Convention on Cluster Munitions, and I was part of that on the civil society side when I worked for Oxfam. New Zealand held a, the Wellington Conference on Cluster Munitions in February 2008, uh, which saw more than 100 countries come to Wellington uh, for the penultimate round of negotiations. And it was just a few months later that the treaty was uh, adopted in Dublin, and now 123 countries are part of it. So New Zealand was one of part of the core group, they call it, of countries that led the process to create the Convention on Cluster Munitions. You know, it came about because the minister in New Zealand at the time, um, New Zealand was spending money to clear cluster munitions and clear landmines uh, from affected areas. And, and what happened is Israel used a vast quantity uh, of cluster munitions in South Lebanon in 2006, polluting, contaminating areas that New Zealand was funding to be cleared of landmines. So I think that the government in New Zealand at that time was pretty upset to see this money being spent to clear landmines on, on land that was then suddenly contaminated with cluster munition remnants. So at that time, New Zealand spoke with Norway uh, and with other concerned countries, and they decided to initiate what became known as the Oslo process to deal with the unacceptable consequences of cluster munitions. But the trouble is, Mary, that Russia, Ukraine and the US are not signed up to this convention. Right. So there's, there is a certain number of countries that remain outside the convention. Many countries who have produced and exported and used cluster munitions in the past are part of the international treaty prohibiting them. It's not a kind of spineless treaty uh, with countries that never had cluster munitions uh, who are participating in it. Um, but certain important, you know, certain countries with big stockpiles of cluster munitions do remain outside, uh, outside the norm. My understanding is, you know, the White House is saying that it has a low, what it calls dud rate. It has a low fail rate. That the US just crossed the line on its own 1% failure rate, which has been in place since 2008, saying that it won't produce, won't use, won't transfer uh, submunitions that have a less than 1%, that result in more than uh, unexploded ordnance more than 1% of the time. Um it's past that now with this decision. It's saying that the, the submunitions and the cluster munitions it's going to deliver to, deliver to Ukraine fail no, no more than 2.35% of the time. 
this is lies. This is honestly lies. We have spent weeks uh, trying to determine how those numbers were reached, and the, the Pentagon will not provide the testing data or information, uh, and it, it, it has not provided it to congressional uh congressional aides who who want to to know. And it's also something that you ask the National Security Council or the State Department, they say, ask the Pentagon. The Pentagon says it's classified. So this has not been the case in previous years that such data is classified. It's only apparently now. And we're worried because we know that the the failure rate is much higher. It's closer to 14%. There's obviously been a lot of arguments against this move. But there are some, for example, General Sir Richard Sharif, he, he's an ex-NATO deputy commander, he says that their deployment will make it easier for Ukraine to break through the Russian lines and that if the West had provided more arms sooner, then there would not have been a need to provide this weapon now. Yeah, I mean, that's what retired generals and former U.S. ambassadors are saying at the moment. They're lining them all up to try and defend an indefensible uh, closed ammunition announcement. Um, you know, the, the, it's a natural tendency for militaries to say we need all the weapons that we can get. You know, chemical weapons would be useful for Ukraine, but they're prohibited and so they're not being transferred. The United States just completed the destruction of its entire stockpile of chemical weapons on Friday uh, and yet it's transferring its stocks of cluster munitions, which are also banned, uh, to, to, to Ukraine. It makes, it makes little sense to us. All the Ukrainians and Zelensky are asking for is to give them the same weapons the Russians have to use in their own country against Russians who are in their own country. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Is the US breaking international law? Well, that was Stephen Hoadley's first reaction. He's Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at Auckland University. I learned several things. First of all, the United States has been considering this for many months, maybe more than a year. The United States has been very reluctant to release other weapons systems like the M1A Abrams tank the Patriot Anti-Air Defense System, most recently the F-15 fighter. So these are decisions that have been thrashed through thoroughly from the executive branch through to the Department of Defense, discussed with leading members of Congress in both political parties, uh, have been costed, uh, have been consulted with allies and friends, and are reached with, uh, as the president said, with great reluctance. And it was a very difficult decision on my part. Uh, and by the way, I discussed this with our allies, discussed this with our friends up on the Hill. And uh, we're in a situation where Ukraine continues to be brutally attacked across the board by munitions, by these cluster munitions that are, have dud rates that are very high, that are dangerous to civilians. Number one. Number two, uh, the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. Now, on the particular issue of cluster munitions, this, as we know, is a controversial weapon. 125 countries have signed an agreement to uh, not use them. Uh, this does not constitute international law yet. It's the gray area where a majority of countries have signed an agreement but there is no treaty. So the United States is technically correct. It is not breaking the law. 
because first of all, there is no law, and secondly, um, there is no agreement by the United States to uh, the various uh, uh, agreements. Now, there is an argument that this constitutes conventional international law. It's, again, a gray area where a, a, a number of countries, by agreeing to a particular, say, uh, prohibition of slavery, uh, eventually becomes a moral imperative, and then it becomes embodied in treaties, and at that point it becomes international law. We're not quite there yet. Now, the United States also has not signed up to the landmine convention, although a great majority of countries have done so. And, and the argument in both cases is that landmines and cluster munitions have defensive utility. We're talking about uh, military pragmatism here. We're talking about the usefulness of these weapons under certain circumstances to uh, provide a defensive capability that otherwise would not be possible. The implicit uh, assumption here is that they would not be used on civilians, that civilian harm, in accordance with the Geneva Conventions, uh, would be uh, observed, that there would be no deliberate uh, targeting of civilians, and that's an, an important distinction, that the response should be proportionate and discriminating, that is, uh, to uh, focus on the military forces of the opposing side, which is legal in international law. That is, to, to kill a combatant is not murder. To kill a civilian is murder. And that distinction is absolutely fundamental to uh, the intent and the practice of, of the various sides. Where does that leave the US's relationship with its um, NATO allies, though? That's an excellent question that will be answered in Vilnius, Lithuania, when the Allies meet face-to-face -face with the U.S. representatives, and Chris Hipkins will be there too, and he will also be faced with this uncomfortable question, do you go along with the majority and give Ukraine all the necessary support, and weapons, uh, economic aid, humanitarian aid, uh, assistance with their refugees that they need to carry out this, uh, what I believe is a, becoming a, a proxy war uh, between the Western coalition and the Russian challenger to the Western consensus? Or uh, do, you, do you step back and refuse to give certain weapons to the Ukrainians? And there will be, I think, quite a strenuous debate, maybe not in public. I think the, the NATO allies will want to issue a unified communique with full support for the Ukrainians and, and whatever further policies and assistance they want to do. But behind the scenes, which we, we might not be privy to in, in the media and in the public, there might be some pretty strenuous discussions uh, with with some a lot of moral heat, uh, as opposed to the the pragmatic uh, decision making uh, between the different uh, delegations, I think it's pretty clear New Zealand will be against uh, this decision. But I, I, I can't imagine uh, that uh, Chris Hipkins or any New Zealand re representative would want to contradict NATO if it decides to back this decision. More likely. 
NATO will will uh, sidestep the issue and say, look, this is a, a matter for individual governments, just as the F-16 issue was a matter for the U.S. government uh, and, and then the other cooperating governments to turn over their F-16s to Ukraine. And therefore, NATO itself will not take a position on approving uh, NATO uh, cluster weapons. Uh, rather, uh, each individual government will make its own decision. Those who don't like it will not turn over those kinds of weapons. And those who um, go with the pragmatic side of the argument will do so uh, in, in, in some form. And New Zealand, of course, will, will remain on the moral side uh, as it it always has on landmines, on nuclear weapons, on lasers, and uh, other sorts of, of weapons. Obviously, the thinking is that these cluster munitions will make a difference in, in the fight against Russia. But could it be the thing that leads to the end of the war? Those munitions themselves will not bring an end to the war. What they will do, they will be force multipliers, they will add to the Ukrainian artillery men uh, the ability to cover larger areas uh, to uh, perhaps uh, neutralize the, the soldiers in the trenches, neutralize the mines that are planted in the path of the oncoming Ukrainians. Uh, they are slightly more effective than, say, the largest of the artillery shells or the cruise missile um, explosives that can be targeted uh, to the battlefield. So you're quite right. Uh, the, the cluster munitions will simply give the uh, Ukrainians more artillery ammunition so they can match the, uh, the, the artillery barrage uh, uh, put down by the Russians uh, shell for shell. And, and this will neutralize the inherent Russian advantage of size and weight and help the Ukrainians then perhaps by fighting a little smarter, a little uh, with better concentration, better battlefield coordination, uh, they can then offset their uh, numerical disadvantage and perhaps make progress in the battlefield that they otherwise might not be able to. So is this a done deal? Is it too late to stop it? Here's Mary Wareham again from Human Rights Watch. I unfortunately think so. And... It appears that the US will be now transferring hundreds of thousands of rounds of artillery containing extremely unreliable uh, submunitions that Ukraine is now going to fire. Here's another point. Uh, we kept hearing in the earlier phases of this war about, um, you know, Ukraine being the wheat basket of Europe. Well, if they're going to saturate the place with cluster munitions and the dud rate is only, air quotes, 2.35%, it will be a long time before Ukraine can safely grow wheat in those areas again. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Stephen Hoadley, Mary Wareham and Trasa Dunworth. Kakite anō. <laughs>